Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 platinum jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Honey, wake up. What was that? What? What? Go back to sleep. Someone's at the door. Sweetheart, it's Christmas Eve. Maybe it's Santa Claus. Don't be silly. I heard something. I'm sure it's nothing. Help! Somebody please help! There's been a fire! They're stuck inside! That sounds like nothing to you? Marion, what's going on? Is everything okay? There's been a fire. My brothers and sisters are trapped inside the house. Oh, dear God. Please, I need to use your phone to call the fire department. Of course. Get inside. Damn it! What's wrong? I can't get an operator. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our first episode on the Sodder family tragedy, the 1945 Christmas Eve mystery in which five children disappeared without a trace from their Fayetteville, West Virginia home. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Christmas Eve, 1945. In the small town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, George and Jenny Sodder settled into bed not knowing that they had seen five of their ten children for what would be the final time. 
The fire that would consume their home and possibly claim the lives of five of their children seemingly came out of nowhere. It would not be until a week later at the dawn of the 1946 New Year that the Sodders would begin having their doubts about what actually happened on that fateful night. The mysterious circumstances surrounding this tragedy spawned rumors, gossip, and lore that captivated amateur sleuths for decades and would become one of the most famous mysteries in the history of West Virginia. Now, some 70 years later, one question still dominates Christmas time conversation in small town Fayetteville. What really happened to the Sodder children? To answer that, we first have to understand where they came from. George Sauter was born Giorgio Sodu in Tulo, Sardinia, a large Mediterranean island located just off the coast of Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the United States in 1908 at the tender age of 13, along with his older brother. George and his brother, like many immigrants, arrived first at Ellis Island. But for George, things took a turn for the worst before he could even get his land legs. Homesick, George's older brother returned to Italy almost immediately after they made it through Ellis Island, leaving young George all alone in a strange country. That'd be terrifying for any 13-year-old, let alone one who could barely speak the language of his new home. One might reasonably wonder why George didn't just return home to Italy with his brother, but the answer is predictably complicated. Even until late into his life, George often refused to talk about his reasons for leaving Italy. This aversion to discussing his pre-American life would later serve as fuel for those who believe that the Christmas Eve fire had something to do with George's connection to organized crime. Whatever his reasons were for staying, George quickly took a liking to his new life in America. It wasn't long before he found a job working on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and other supplies to the laborers. Soon after, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia, where he first worked as a driver before starting his own trucking company, hauling dirt for construction and later freight and coal. It was in Smithers that he walked into a local store called The Music Box and met the woman he would marry. Something I can help you with? Just browsing. Well, let me know if I can help you with anything. My pop owns this place, so I basically know it inside and out. I'm Jenny. Jenny Cipriani. Pleasure to meet you, Jenny. Name's George Sauter. And I think I already got my eye on something I like. Like George, Jenny Cipriani was a first-generation Italian immigrant. She came over to the States at just three years old with her family. It wasn't long before George and Jenny were married. Records detailing exactly what year the Sodders were married or how old they were at the time of the ceremony are sparse, but we do know that shortly after their nuptials, the couple moved out on their own. They settled down in a two-story timber frame house outside the quiet town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, just a short ride away from Jenny's family in Smithers. Though small, the town featured an active Italian-American community. So even here, thousands of miles from their native country and deep within the heart of rural West Virginia, George and Jenny Sauter never felt too far from home. For George, things couldn't have been more perfect. After years spent thousands of miles away from his nearest family member, he now was well on his way to starting a new family of his own. Hush, Johnny. It'll be okay. What's the matter with him? He's been crying all damn night. Maybe we should take him to a doctor. He'll be fine. It's you I'm worried about. 
How can you be expected to drive all that coal around when the two of us have barely been sleeping? Please, this is nothing. I used to have to sleep along the tracks in between my shifts with the railroad. At least now I got a bed. And a wife. Don't forget a baby. How could I? Besides, things are only going to get tougher when Joe gets here. Joe? I thought we still hadn't decided on a name. We didn't. I'm just... suggesting. George would be 28 years old and Jenny only 20 when the couple welcomed the first of their 10 children, John Sauter, in 1923. Their second son, Joe, came later that same year. Irish twins, huh? Yeah, Italian twins might be more appropriate. <laughs> the Sauters would go on to become one of the most respected middle-class families in the area. As George's trucking business continued to grow... So, too, did the size of his immediate family. George and Jenny welcomed 10 children between 1923 and 1943. Joe, the second oldest, would go on to serve in the military during World War II. Joe Sauter's military service would prevent him from being present on the night of his family's fiery tragedy. Sylvia, the youngest of the Sauters, was born in 1943, just a year prior to when Italian dictator Benito Mussolini would be ousted from power and executed. You might think it's strange to make a connection between these two events, but Mussolini played a very vital and complicated role in the fate of the Sauter family. You see, George Sauter was never afraid to share his strong opinions on any variety of topics, be they business, current events, or politics. And you remember what I said about Fayetteville's small but fervent Italian-American community? Well, certain members of that community came to know George for his strong opinions on one topic in particular. Mussolini. Exactly. George was a known critic of Mussolini throughout the dictator's reign over Italy. I'm sure that didn't exactly endear him to some of his Italian compatriots. It did not, especially during World War II. Many Italian immigrants resented the United States' decision to take up arms against their home country, and by the time 1943 rolled around, George had already made a reputation for himself as being someone who didn't exactly hold his tongue when it came to politics. Hey, George! Long time no see! How's Jenny and the kids? Hey, Teddy. Everybody's good. You got time to give me a cut before you close up shop? You kidding me? For you, I always got time. Just let me finish up with the guy I got in the chair. Giuseppe, you know George Sauter? Owns the trucking company. Pleased to meet you. Same to you. George, you see what they're doing to Il Duce? Ousting him from office? Unbelievable. Nobody's got any respect anymore. Mussolini is Italy. Mm-hmm. None of this ever would have happened if the Americans would have just kept their noses out of things. I don't see why they couldn't just leave Europe well enough alone. That's what I'm saying. Leave Italy to the Italians. As far as I'm concerned, Mussolini and the fascists got what was coming to them. If anything, he should have been ousted years ago. Now, George, you don't mean that. Oh, I do. If I had my way, that bastard would have been hanged in the Milan city square ages ago. Same for his fascist buddies. Hey, you better watch how you talk. All right, all right. I think that's enough politics for the day. Listen, Giuseppe, don't mind George. He's got a boy serving with the army over there. He gets a little animated talking about this stuff. I didn't want to get into this. You know how I feel on the whole thing. I'm just trying to get a haircut here. That'll be 35 cents. Teddy, I'll see you in two weeks. Give my love to the family. And you, Mr. Sauter, you'd do well to watch the way you speak about El Duce. 
I think he likes me. It was this vocal nature that made George Sauter stand out amid an otherwise unassuming community. And it's also what made him so unpopular among many of his fellow Fayetteville Italians. But were the pro-Mussolini fascists really so radical that they would go the ultimate distance in order to silence George Sauter permanently? We'll find out after the break. Now, back to the story. By the time 1945 rolled around, the Sauters had established themselves as one of the preeminent middle-class families in the Fayetteville area. The trucking business that George had worked hard to build since first moving down to West Virginia was thriving. Years after leaving his family and being left alone in a foreign country, George was now the head of a large family of his own creation. From George's perspective, the dawn of 1945 marked nothing less than the culmination of a lifetime of work. For a boy who started from nothing and came to be the owner of a successful business and the father of 10 healthy children, life was as close to perfect as it could be. But as the year wore on, George would come to find that his years of making enemies had led a number of them right to his doorstep. And by the end of that same year, this period of domestic bliss would be little more than a tragic memory. For George and the rest of the Sodders, the first of what would become a series of peculiar visitors came in early 1945, when an insurance salesman knocked on the family's door looking to sell George a life insurance policy. Something I could help you with? Good afternoon, Mr. Uh, uh, Sodder. George Sodder. Jenny, Betty, careful. You almost damn near ran this gentleman over. Sorry about that. Kids, you know. I sure do. How many? Ten. Nine at home, and we got a boy serving overseas. Ten? Well, that's a party if I've ever heard of one. Which actually brings me to why I'm here. Heading up a family of that size makes life insurance all the more important. Not to cut you off here, but I'm not interested. If you could just give me a moment to talk about some of our offerings, I think you'll find a program that fits your... You have a nice day. What the hell are you knocking like that for? Your goddamn house is gonna go up in smoke and your children are gonna be destroyed. You hear me? You're gonna pay for the dirty remarks you've been making against Mussolini. I'm calling the police. Despite his warning, George ultimately opted not to alert the authorities. Instead, he simply shrugged off the strange insurance salesman's remarks as an empty threat. After all, George already had a well-established reputation around Fayetteville as a vocal critic of Mussolini. And this wasn't the first time that George's political remarks had set off a stranger. But still, the salesman's pointed comments would eventually serve as fodder for endless conspiracy theories from both the Sodders and investigators alike. At the time, only one thing was clear. George Sodder's critical comments about the Italian leader had made him enemies, both known and unknown. Months later, in the spring of 1945, some of the children noticed a strange man parked on the road outside their house as 16-year-old George Jr. shepherded his younger siblings home from school. Martha Marie, slow down. Mama will kill me if she sees you guys running so close to the road. Sorry, Sorry Georgie. Georgie. Georgie, Georgie. Yeah, Martha? Who's that man parked down there? What's he doing? 
Looks like he's just watching us. Maybe he's lost. Uh, maybe. Either way, we should hurry back. That guy's giving me the creeps. Mom will want us back for dinner soon. Just months before the fire in the fall of 1945, the Sodders received an ominous warning from yet another strange visitor. This stranger appeared at the Sodders' door in hopes of securing work with George's trucking company. Do you take milk with your tea? I'm okay, ma'am. Though I do thank you and Mr. Sodder here for your hospitality. I won't take up too much of your time. I've just been out of work for a few months now and heard in town that Mr. Sodder here might be in need of some extra hands for his hauling business. Well, I hate to turn you away, son, but unfortunately I don't have any openings for the time being. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. I got driving experience if that's the issue. Hauled coal in Kentucky for near seven months before a family thing brought me up to West Virginia. It's not the driving, really. I just can't take on any more help right now. I just hired a couple new guys last month. I start paying any more guys and I start losing money, you understand? I understand. I should probably get going. I don't want to waste any more of your time. Let me walk you out. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me. I... Something wrong? Stepping into the Sodder's first floor office, the stranger inspected the fuse box set against the far wall. This is going to cause a fire someday. This marked two strange visitors in six months, both of whom warned the Sodders of the potential for a fire. Hmm. That's certainly a strange coincidence. If it was, in fact, a coincidence, that is. Well, George likely couldn't help but think to himself how odd it was. The strange man showing up at his door asking for work, only to then comment on the dangerousness of a fuse box that he himself had been worrying about? Just weeks before this strange interaction... George had had the local power company come in and inspect the wiring of his new fuse box to ensure its safety. The power company quickly determined that the wiring was indeed safe as could be. If George had any reason to fear for his family's safety, it wouldn't be from anywhere inside his own home. At the time, the stranger's comments likely seemed innocent. Even if it was strange, perhaps the man was simply trying to help the Sodders out. But in just a few short months, this innocuous warning would start to appear incredibly suspicious. Unfortunately for the Sodders, these odd episodes continued to manifest in various forms in the months leading up to the 1945 holiday season. But no amount of odd, threatening visitors or ominous cars parked across the street from their house could have prepared them for what would occur on Christmas Eve 1945. The night at the beginning of the Sodders' decade-long nightmare started just as Christmas Eve always did in the Sodder household, family dinner. With the exception of the Sodders' second oldest son, Joe, who was serving in the military at the time of the fire, the entire family was home that night. George and Jenny were joined at the table by John, the family's oldest at 23, George Jr., Maurice, Martha Lee, Louis, Jenny, Betty, and Sylvia, the youngest at only two and a half. 17-year-old Marion, the family's oldest daughter, wouldn't arrive home from her job working at the local Walls Fayetteville store until just before 10 p.m. After dinner, the family dispersed. John and George Jr., exhausted from a hard day spent working with their father, retreated to bed. All right, that just about does it for the dishes. Georgie, you take out the garbage. Already did it, Mama. Good boy. 
Now, who's ready to open some presents? Georgie, what's the matter? You look like you just heard someone ran over your dog. I'm okay, Mama. Just tired. John and I are going to skip presents if that's alright by you. Work wore us out. Oh, come on. We always open presents as a family. Marion ain't even back from work yet. We'll be up in the morning. Right now I can barely keep my eyes open. Let him sleep. Those boys did good work today. They more than earned a good night's rest. Fine. But you boys better not give me any trouble about waking up in the morning. Thanks, Mama. Good night. The exact layout of the Sauter House has proven a matter of immense contention for those who have followed the case over the years. Accounts of the precise layout are hazy. But newspaper reports from the time seem to hint at the fact that the upper floor of the house was divided into two bedrooms. Other reports have claimed that the second floor was really more of an attic area rather than an actual second story. Well, regardless of the specifics, it remains undisputed that all of the Sodder children slept upstairs, except for Sylvia, the Sodder's youngest, only two at the time, who slept downstairs with George and Jenny. Shortly before 10, Marion arrived home from work, and she didn't come empty-handed. She brought presents for her younger siblings. The children were permitted to play with their new toys until 10, at which time an exhausted Jenny ordered them to bed. All right, kids, that's enough for the night. Y'all can play with your new toys in the morning. Aw, come on, Mama! That's enough out of y'all. Off to bed you go. I don't want to hear another word about it. But, Mama, can't we please just stay up an extra half hour? I want to play with this whatchamacallit that Marion brought me. They call it a slinky, Martha Lee. And, Mama, I'll stay up with them if you want. Fine. You can all stay up on one condition. I want all your chores done before bed. That means feeding the cow, closing the chicken coop, and locking the door. Understood? All right, then. Your father and I are off to bed. Come on now, Sylvia. With that, George and Jenny Sauter retired to their first floor bedroom, their youngest daughter Sylvia in tow. Shortly after midnight, the phone in George's first floor office rang and woke up Jenny. Not wanting to wake up the children, she rushed to answer. Hello? Hello? Can I talk to Henry, please? Henry? I'm sorry, I think you have the wrong number. Sorry about that. (laughs) Was it a prank call? Yet another warning? Before returning to bed, Jenny noticed that the children hadn't completed any of the chores that she'd asked of them. She entered the living room to find the lights on, the shades open, and the door unlocked. Jenny found Marion, the family's oldest daughter and purveyor of the gifts that kept the children up past their normal bedtime, fast asleep on the couch. Jenny quietly locked the doors, closed the shades, and shut the lights before returning to bed. As Jenny closed her eyes, she was startled by the sound of a heavy thud of something hitting against the roof. This sound was quickly followed by what Jenny would later describe as the sound of a ball rolling down the roof and off the side of the house. Jenny considered waking George before shaking off the noise and going back to sleep. On a night marred by tragedy and unanswerable questions, the true story behind what exactly Jenny Sauter heard rolling along the roof just before bed stands among the most puzzling. It would only be later, after Jenny was forced to sift through the ashen ruins of her family home, 
that she would realize this noise's significance. And only then did Jenny realize that perhaps whatever she had heard along the roof had been the cause of the blaze that would soon come to consume her home, her family, and the remainder of her life. We'll investigate the details of that fire after the break. Now, back to the story. On the night of Christmas Eve, 1945, Jenny Sauter fell asleep to the noise of her children playing with Christmas gifts brought home by her oldest daughter as a surprise. But just hours later, Jenny awoke to a terrifying surprise of her own. George? George, wake up! What is it? George, I smell smoke. What? George, you gotta get up. I think there may be a fire. Fine, I'll check it myself. Jenny Sauter awoke at just after 1.30 a.m. on Christmas Day, 1945, to the smell of smoke. Still half asleep, Jenny stumbled into the hallway. Once there, she was immediately overcome by a wave of heat and choking black smoke. George! Kids, there's a fire! We need to go now! Mama, what's the matter? Georgie, wake up your brothers and sisters. We have to get out of the house. I'm going to try to call the fire department. But when Jenny opened the door, the fire had already spread to the office. Unable to reach the phone, she quickly switched her attention to getting her family out of the house and fast. Frantic, Jenny sprinted into the living room to wake Marion, who was still asleep on the couch. Marion, wake up. Five more minutes, Mama. Honey, I need you up now. Go get Sylvia from my bedroom. Hurry. It was at this point that George Sr. sprung into action. Awake and now keenly aware of the danger facing his family, he ran out of the house to retrieve a water barrel he kept just out near his work trucks. Unfortunately for George, the water in the barrel had been frozen solid by the frigid winter cold. By the time he turned back to the house, flames had already started to gather along the front entrance stairs. Meanwhile, inside the house, the two older solder boys, John and George Jr., rushed from their bedrooms and down the stairs. And it is at this very moment that a key element of the entire Sauter family mystery takes place. You see, in John Sauter's first statement to the police, he claimed that before running downstairs, he went into both bedrooms and awoke his siblings. Martha Lee, Betty, wake up! The house is on fire! We need to get out of here! However, in his follow-up interview, John would tell the police that he only shouted up at his siblings after arriving safely downstairs. Regardless of what happened, John and George Jr. quickly joined George, Jenny, Marion, and Sylvia outside. But if the Sodders thought their Christmas Eve nightmare would end once they escaped from their burning home, they would soon find that they were sadly mistaken. Desperate to get the rest of the children, George began scaling the side of the house with his hands. Unsurprisingly, George's climbing efforts failed, so he quickly turned to more blunt methods. Damn it! The fire's too hot! I can't get inside! George! You're hurt! Your arm! I'll be all right. You're bleeding bad, Pop. George had badly sliced his hand and arm when breaking a downstairs window. John, Georgie... Grab one of the trucks and pull it up to the house. Maybe we can try and climb up the cab and break into one of those upstairs windows. Got it, Pop. I'll run around back and grab my ladder. Much to George's surprise, when he turned the corner to where he always kept his ladder, he found it was nowhere to be seen. Damn thing won't turn over. Get out. Let me give it a try. 
Oh, that's impossible. It was running fine just a few hours ago. One of you check the second truck. Already did. It's dead just like this one. What the hell is going on here? As George struggled with the trucks, Marion had already run over to wake up the Sodder's nearest neighbors in the hope that she could use their phone to reach the fire department. As we heard in the opening, Marion and the Sodder's neighbors were unable to connect to an operator, most likely because the phone was part of a shared party line system and there was no operator on duty to put the call through. Fortunately, another neighbor spotted the fire and quickly ran to a local bar called Crass's Park to call the fire department. Like Marion, the neighbor couldn't reach an operator on the bar telephone. So the neighbor drove two miles into Fayetteville to wake up the fire chief. Chief Morris! Chief Morris! What's this racket? There's a fire at the solder place. Some of the kids are trapped inside. Christ, I'll make some calls. I'll need some time to get someone over here to drive the fire truck. Why can't you just take it over now? Those kids are stuck inside. If we wait any longer, they might- We don't got any choice. I can't drive the damn thing. Unfortunately for the Sodders, Fayetteville Fire Chief F.J. Morris didn't know how to drive the fire truck. So any attempt to put out the fire at the Sodder family home had to wait until he could get into contact with a firefighter who could. Was this nothing more than sheer ineptitude? or perhaps a calculated decision by Fire Chief Morris to send the ever-outspoken George Sodder a lasting message? Either way, Chief Morris's delay proved costly. The Fayetteville Fire Department employed a phone tree system for emergencies that required each firefighter to call two more firefighters and alert them of the fire. This doesn't seem like the most efficient system. It was the best system rural West Virginia had to offer at the time, but no, the process wasn't exactly built for expediency. Back outside the Sodders, a crowd gathered to watch as the fire raged on. When all was said and done, 14-year-old Maurice, 12-year-old Martha, 9-year-old Louis, 8-year-old Jenny, and 5-year-old Betty The five children, who had only hours earlier begged their mother to stay up late so they could play with their new gifts, would never be seen again. They say that the smell of human flesh burning is one you remember for the rest of your life. It haunts you like a bad dream, never quite forgotten, even when long gone. Which is exactly why it was so odd that none of those who witnessed the fire would remember smelling even a hint of the pungent aroma of burning flesh at the time of the fire. It wasn't just a smell that was missing. Not one witness that night would remember ever seeing a child's face at the window, nor would they recall hearing cries from any of the five children supposedly trapped inside. It was like the five missing solder children were never even there. In a matter of less than an hour, the Sodder family home was reduced to rubble. The Fayetteville Fire Department did not arrive at the scene until 8 a.m. on Christmas Day, some seven hours after the fire had started. By then, there was little that the firefighters could do beyond hose down the smoldering embers that lay among the scorched remains of the Sodder family home. When all was said and done, All that was left of the house was an ash-filled hole where there had once been a basement. Once the scene was deemed safe, the fire department and police began sifting through the rubble. It wasn't long before those investigating the scene came to a startling discovery. 
Impossible. We'll just have to keep looking. We'll find them. I don't see the point. We've been out here for hours. If they were out here, we would have found something by now. What the hell am I supposed to tell the family? That their children just disappeared into thin air? I mean, come on. They have to be here, somewhere. Why don't you tell them the truth? There ain't nothing here but ash and dirt. Eh, easy for you to say. You don't know George Sodder. He's gonna wanna know for sure what happened to his kids. And he ain't gonna accept I don't know for an answer. You got any better ideas? <sighs> George? Jenny? Could I have a word? Of course, Chief. Did you find them? Did you find my babies? That's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. Oh my god, you found the bodies, didn't you? Dear god, just tell me they didn't suffer, please. Just tell me they didn't suffer. I'm sorry. They're gone. If you guys want to take some ashes from the scene for a memorial or whatever you're planning, you're more than welcome. It's all right, sweetheart. It'll be all right. Can we see the bodies? Well, actually, our investigation... It turned up some unusual findings. Unusual? Unusual how? It's unusual in that we didn't actually find anything. The authorities' search of the scene uncovered no bones, no remains, no indications that the missing children had even been at home at the time of the fire. Despite this absence of any physical evidence, the authorities quickly concluded that the missing Sauter children had all perished in the fire. After all, all the missing children were last seen playing in the living room before presumably turning in for the night and going to bed upstairs. They had to have been inside the house. There simply was no other explanation for what could have happened to them. Or was there? This question would spur a family's decades-long search for answers that would stretch from the foothills of West Virginia to the bustling streets of New York City and all the way to tranquil beaches of Palermo, Sicily. Next week, the search for the answer to what happened to the Sauter children continues as we discuss the discovery of a human heart, the disappearance of a family-hired private investigator, and a mysterious letter from one of the missing children. As we'll see, the mystery of the missing Sauter children has provided far more questions than answers. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast's podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Kimberly Holland, Harris Markson, and Steve Pinto. Unsolved Murders.